One of my favorite places to tell stories is in front of a fire in the wilderness. Imagine you're in the wilderness, only you're camping with Oprah. Now that's a great story. Expanding World in association with the Explorers Club are proud sponsors of this episode of Life's Tough, Explorers Are Tougher, and the Global Exploration Summit, a pioneering endeavor bringing together the world's leading explorers, sharing cutting-edge technology, and innovations to propel us toward the next frontier in the future of exploration and to make a difference in the future of humanity. Visit GlexSummit.com to learn more about the Global Exploration Summit and the impactful men and women who are the heart and soul of scientific innovation and exploration. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore, It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Welcome to the show. There's a tradition of the explorer, and that's the role of a storyteller. And I have a theory that since the beginning of humankind, there's always been one intrepid individual who would venture across the horizon and come back, stand over a fire and say, you'll never guess what I saw. You'll never guess what happened to me. Our guest today is U.S. National Park Ranger Shelton Johnson. And as you will soon hear, has followed that tradition. You may recognize him from the Ken Burns documentary, National Parks, America's Best Secret. Welcome to the show, Shelton. Richard, it's a pleasure being on the show. Thank you for having me. You know, I I was just talking about that idea of storytellers over fires. And I think that as an American, one of my strongest images is that of people around a campfire telling stories. Yeah. I know as a park ranger, you've really gotten to see a very varied audience of people experience the outdoors. But there's one 
camping guests that you had that, I, you know, really, I've heard stories about space and, and people going to the bottom of the ocean, but you actually went camping with Oprah. Yeah, that's right. Oprah, I invited her to Yosemite and her and her people decided that what would be better than surprising Ranger Shelton? Uh, I don't think she was thinking of the medical implications of surprising me. <laughs> I didn't have a coronary, but I think I might have been close. But I, I basically disguised my state of shock when she suddenly appeared along with Gail King at the south entrance. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, Christmas is not supposed to come except on December 25th. But it really felt like a celebratory event when suddenly Gail and Oprah were approaching me uh, at the south entrance. And, and she brought her entire crew. So the, the Oprah Winfrey show was with her. So, yeah, I was in a state of shock. But it was also that moment of recognizing that a dream that I have had for years was about to come true. I wanted to magnify and amplify the Buffalo Soldier history, the story of African-Americans stewarding the second and third oldest national parks in the country. And uh, so having Oprah in front of me was a means of communicating that to my own people, to not just my own people, but to all people, because their show was the number one talk show on planet Earth. So all of that was pressurized in that moment. And that was the light in my eyes that was shock <laughs> but also just a, a sense of being blessed that she was present in front of me. You know, about 20 years ago, I was invited to a small dinner in New York City, and it was just five people and Oprah. And um, again, I, I was I was pleasantly surprised. I thought she was a really amazing person. But I would think in a camping situation, she doesn't travel light and she doesn't travel without <laughs> a lot of other people. So that, that had to be a little bit different. And, and I'm sure your colleagues in the parks department there at Yosemite probably said, what is she like? You know, what was she like camping and all that other stuff? What was, what was your favorite sort of Oprah moment there? Well, there were several, but you know, the key thing is that she had never been camping before. So Yosemite was not only her first camping trip, it was also her first visit to any national park in the world. So she was not accustomed to this whole experience of being really in the outdoors. And it was a, an interesting thing to be an observer, to see how she was negotiating this very new terrain for her. Because for her, this was a wilderness experience. You know, for people who you know, regularly venture into the national parks and wilderness areas around the world, uh, wilderness means a completely different thing. They're thinking Bhutan, they're thinking the, Him the Himalaya, they're thinking all of these other places, the outback in Australia. But for someone who is very urban and urbane, the experience of being in Yosemite was as remote. It was the dark side of the moon. But she negotiated it. She was having fun with it. Gail was having fun with it. And I have to say that one of my greatest memories uh, was being in the car with Oprah and Gail. And we're driving towards uh, Yosemite Valley. And I'm hearing off in the distance a helicopter. And I'm wondering, what's that sound from? And I, I looked up and I said, hey, guys, there's a helicopter overhead. And without missing a beat, Oprah was at the wheel drive and she said, oh, don't worry, it's mine. <laughs> so her helicopter that was flying crazy. over our SUV and filming us as we were going. And then later when the show was broadcast, I saw that, that scene of the SUV and I'm thinking, I'm in that SUV. And that's, that's, that's how, that was my introduction to that level of Hollywood where I didn't even know I was in a scene of a movie, but I was in the scene of a television show. But you know, that's a great story, but it's, I guess uh, to me, it's, uh, you know, life sometimes is stranger than fiction. And, you know, I once read a quote from you and because you've been a very prominent uh, speaker 
uh, in the national parks. I know that you actually went to um, the screening of Ken Burns' film in the White House, which is a whole other question. But someone once asked you why you did not seek a promotion or higher pay. And this is what the quote you said is, I facilitate astonishment. I didn't join the park service for money. I get paid in gasps. And and I'm sure there's, there's such satisfaction. Forget about Oprah. I mean, that would, would be fun for sure. But when you have a carload of nine or 10-year-olds coming there for the first time and you get the wow moment, that has mm-hmm. got to be yeah. a great feeling. It is. It's better than any paycheck. It's better than any inheritance. When you, when you bring someone into this environment, these environments, our national parks, the protected areas around the world, and when you have young people who could not have even imagined that places such as Yosemite or Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon or our national parks throughout the world existed, and to see that look of awe, and of course that word is rooted in the same word for fear, but fear is a mechanism that wakes up the mind, it wakes up the spirit and the soul, and really what it means is that you are literally, all that is human within you is displayed through that look, through that gaze. And um, that's, that's, that's what I live for, are those moments when you can see young people who could not even imagine a place like Yosemite Falls, or Yosemite, and Yosemite Falls existed, and they're watching it. They're watching the highest waterfalls in North America flow in front of them. And maybe they spent their lives reading about Hogwarts and the, and the Harry Potter books. And the thing that I've always tried to communicate is that there are so many wondrous, magical places in the world, and they're real. They're real. And when you're in Yosemite Valley and you see the highest waterfalls in North America, when you're in Yellowstone, you're walking to the Upper Geyser Basin. When I was in the Peace Corps in West Africa, and I remember taking this midnight bath outside in the rainforest during a full moon with all of these birds and and animals just making their individual noises, this cacophony that was surrounding me, I felt I had been thrust back to the beginning of humanity itself. And it was a baptism, but it was a baptism that was a secular one, but it was yet sacred at the same time. That's what I live for. I live to see those kids wake up for the first time in their lives in the presence of something that's divine. Now, you mentioned just briefly Buffalo Soldiers, and that's a term or a piece of history that most Americans have never heard of. And um, I think as most historians will say, it's so important to really explain history because really it tells you where you, you've come from and really the roadmap of where you're going. How does the story of the Buffalo Soldier turn of the uh, 20th century really uh, unfold? Well, the thing that's so powerful about it, specifically and particularly for African-Americans, is imagine you find yourself, and you have done this, you find yourself in another nation. You're in another country, you're in another part of the world, different language, different customs, different culture, and then you get invited to someone's home. And when you get to that home, the door opens and it's your family, it's your mother, it's your father, it's maybe your brother, your sister, they're there behind that door. Here you are in a completely foreign, unfamiliar environment, but family opens the door. That's what happens when you are African-American, you venture out into the unknown, you visit a national park and you find a history that, that tells you that you've arrived where you started. You, I'm almost quoting T.S. Eliot, you know, but you arrive literally at your own home. And that is a powerful engagement when what appeared to be foreign is familiar, not only familiar, it's family. So this, the story of the Buffalo Soldiers, these were, and again, I, I've heard you speak, if anybody has the opportunity to see Shelton 
on YouTube. I think it was a Black History Month from last year or the year before. And you were talking about the history of the Buffalo Soldier. It is really worth um, hearing. It is one of the best extemporaneous talks for 16 minutes without any stumbles, ooms, ahs, uh, and just pure enthusiasm. So we don't have 16 minutes to hear about the Buffalo Soldier, but for people listening to this, what is a Buffalo Soldier? Where were they? Why is it important? Why does it matter? Yeah. Buffalo soldiers were African-American cavalry and infantry troops or regiments that were formed in the 1860s, just after the Civil War. It's important to keep in mind that the United States military was segregated uh, up until 1948 when Truman, President Truman, passed an executive order ending segregation in the military. And so uh, these troops, when they served during the Indian Wars, their Plains Indian protagonists, when they were close in in hand-to-hand combat, they saw that the hair on their head was just like the matted cushion between the horns of the buffalo. And then in the Dakotas, these African-American soldiers sometimes would start wearing literally coats made out of the fur, the hide of a buffalo. And so you couldn't tell where the buffalo ended and the African-American began. And because because of all those similarities, uh, a lot of the Plains Indians began to call them buffalo soldiers. And considering that the buffalo was the heart of Plains Indian cultures, that that was a great compliment. And these African-American soldiers took it as a great compliment. But they didn't think of themselves necessarily as buffalo soldiers. They were 24th or 25th regiments of infantry. They were the 9th or 10th regiments of cavalry. That's how they saw themselves. But this other name took took on a life of its own. And of course, think of it this way. This history is so important that a guy in Jamaica by the name of Bob Marley, it's that story so resonated Buffalo with him soldier. that he created a song called Buffalo Soldier. So it's not just something that's just specific to the United States. It has everything to do with the African diaspora and Africans in America, not African-Americans, but Africans in America finding something to celebrate that was a positive as opposed to a history that was very much a negative. And I mean, slavery, I mean, the period of Jim Crow, all of those things. So uh, these are guys that should be wearing capes and spandex. They should be, they should be flying through the air because they're, they, what they did was heroic, but, at a, but in a, at a terrible cost because you have indigenous people at war with indigenous people, people the, of African descent fighting the indigenous Native Americans. And the two groups that had the most in common in terms of outlook, cultural perspectives, were the two groups who were at odds with each other because of this whole n- nature of America becoming America at that time. So if someone were to, say, climb to the top of uh, Mount Whitney, that's the highest mountain in the lower 48s, or come into Yosemite, would they be walking on the path that was actually created by these people back in 1904 or five? I don't know the exact years, but are, are there remnants of this? 1903 is when uh, Charles Young, Captain Charles Young, the third African-American to graduate from West Point, was the acting military superintendent of Sequoia National Park. And that was also the year that the first trail was, was built to the top of Mount Whitney, which at that time was the highest mountain in the United States because Alaska wasn't a state at that point. So that's a, that's a great achievement because when you think about uh, the history of mountaineering, you don't normally think of figures that are African-American. But here are these African-American soldiers who were not trained to, to do this, necessarily to do this work. But one thing that's important to keep in mind uh, West Point was the greatest school of engineering in the United States at that time, in the, in, the, in the 19th century. So it makes perfect sense 
that the military was invested in building infrastructure in these fledgling national parks. Who else would have the skill set to build a road, to build, to build buildings, to build a town in the middle of the wild? So why not build a trail to the top of the highest mountain? And that's what they did in 1903. Shelton, I know you're, you're an advocate for bringing minorities, uh, you know, particularly African-Americans, to the park system. And how do you, first of all, get them there? Because I, to be honest, I don't see a lot of them in, in national parks, more so than in the past, I can say that. And then how do you convince them that they own this park as much as I do, you do, as much as the president does? What, 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 is, what is the pitch? Well, the, the pitch is, is that when you talk to African-Americans today, they are African-Americans. But at one time, 100, 200 years ago, we were all Africans in America. We were all indigenous people to various nations throughout Africa. And so when you return as an African-American to the wild, you may not be returning specifically to Africa, but you were returning to the earth. You're returning to that sense of indigenous rootedness to the land, to the sky, and all the space in between. So I always argue that any African-American that goes into the wild is going to Africa. Because if you and I, right now, if we were standing in the sea of tranquility on the moon, like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, who are explorer members, right, or were explorer members. They are. We could, they are. You could look up and see the earth. And from that view, there are no nations. From that view, you can't see roads or streets or cities. All you see is the biosphere. All you see are clouds. All you see is the light of, of that is sacred, that, that has no equal, as far as we know, anywhere in the known universe. And, and you would have been, and I would be, in awe of what we're seeing. And so that's the point right there, is that the wild is not just specific to Africa. The wild is the earth itself. So African-Americans can find Africa, reconnect with Africa in our national parks. It's the same place. So you have um, made the point numerous times, I've heard, that the best reality show going on is, is really outside. And it's, it's not on your smartphone or iPad or, or any other device. Describe a moment in Yosemite, and, and this probably happens often, where there is magic in the air. In Yosemite, in the spring, right now, during the full moon, there is a phenomenon called the lunar rainbow, which occurs in the spray of Lower Yosemite Fall, which is part of Yosemite Falls, which is the fifth highest waterfalls in the world. You can walk to the base of a waterfall this waterfall during the full moon and see a lunar rainbow in the spray of Lower Yosemite Fall. Now you can get into the science of it. You can talk about the vapor of the water, the spray, how it works as a prism, how it breaks up visible light into all the different constituents. But that's a boring way to describe wonder, to describe magic. You don't have to go to Hogwarts. You don't have to go to, to Middle Earth. That, 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 that sense of the divine, that sense of, the, of spiritual magic is right there, and it's a reality. And when you're at the base of the Lower Yosemite Fall, and you see that rainbow form, you know that there's a higher power in this world, and you are in its presence. And whatever name it may be, it's, it's, it's in color, and it is, it is iridescent, and it is lighting up itself, and it's lighting you up at the same time. I'm getting ready to pack the car with the kids and, and come over, but I have, admittedly, I'm not what I consider a religious person, but there have been times when I stand outside, and, and probably the most spectacular things I've ever seen are 
a full solar eclipse beyond crazy. You know, I could see mm-hmm. why people thought the world was ending. But the other thing is, if you've ever seen an aurora borealis, it is lights dancing out there. I mean, goosebumps you get from seeing that yeah. stuff. And and, yeah. and and I think that people feel, okay, I can't go up to a northern climate to see that. But there's so many things of magistry. And, and I think the descriptive you've used is a tree. Like, you, you're from Detroit originally. You might contextualize a tree differently in an urban area where it's planted around concrete versus going out in any, in a grove of trees. Care to elaborate mm-hmm. on that? Well, think of it this way. Um, most people that live in urban areas don't think that when they're in the presence of a tree, they're in the presence of something that's divine. I mean, that, that is greater than they are. That, I mean, when, I mean, when you think of like Icelandic myths and so forth, you, you know, what was that extrazilia? You think of the, the tree is like the symbolic of the cosmos itself. Well, when you're in the presence of the gentle Sherman tree, the largest sequoia in the world and the largest tree in the world by volume of wood, a tree that has a branch that's greater in diameter than any tree east of the Mississippi River. So it's a tree, a gigantic tree that has an immense branch that's larger than any tree east of the Mississippi. You know you're in the presence of something that is much greater than anything that human beings could even conceive of or imagine themselves to become. And you are left speechless, as we all should, because in that speechless moment, that's where God or spirit comes in, because that's where the sacred is always found. It is found in silence. And that's what I loved about being a tour guide, if you will, a ranger in Lehman Cave in Great Basin National Park, because as you know, it's just as quiet in a cave as it is outside if you're in the middle of the Great Basin Desert. And I find that same sense of the sacred in the presence of anything that reminds human beings that we're really a small, very small, infinitesimally tiny part of the universe. And that's what a giant sequoia is there for, I think, to some degree. It is there to give us and restore humility. We don't have enough humility and we need to have that in order to survive. You know, I I have to ask you two questions before um, we leave. And one is that I know that you watched the movie Ken Burns' documentary with President Obama. And again, here's a guy who's, you know, very mired in politics, industry, all that other stuff. What was his sense of it? He, he never struck me as always being outside. I get the feeling he probably would like to be more outside. Was there a seminal moment there that you sort of had him go, I've got to check this out? Oh yeah, I can tell you the seminal moment. Uh, I was actually asked to accompany President Obama up to Vernal Fall. Oh wow! And so I'm so I'm walking with when I'm not, it's not just President Obama. It was President Obama, and it was the, the first family. They're all walking up to Vernal Fall, and then the first thing I noticed was that President Obama is in pretty good shape. I mean, I, I I had to run ahead of him of the group to be there as the ranger who's posted when they arrived. And when President Obama arrived at the top of Vernal Fall, he, he barely seemed to even have, like he had went through the makeup department. There was no beating sweat or anything. He just looked like himself. Are we so talking about a unicorn there. or are we talking about Obama? <laughs> We're talking about Obama. <laughs> so he's standing there. And I felt that this was the moment I can give my pitch. I could thank him for, for creating the Charles Young Buffalo Soldier National Monument. I could tell him that, you know, remember me? I worked with, with Ken Burns. I was there at the White House and we talked about the national parks. You told me a story about your grandmother. And you being with her in Yellowstone and this bison that that you were walking to and her yelling at you saying, boy, boy, get away from that. You know, so anyway, the point is, I was going to tell him all this stuff. 
But what I looked, when I looked in his face, all I could see was that look of awe that you know and that I know. And he was looking at it and he was a part of the world around him. He was immersed in it and there was no separation between Obama and the range of light. And I realized that that, that was not the moment to, to pitch something to him. That was his moment to be in Yosemite and for Yosemite to be in him. So I let him alone and I let him have, my, have his moment in Yosemite. But I, I think you just described, and this was going to be my last question, that you know, national parks are America's best secret that you can have a head of state, you can have a queen, you could have Oprah, you could have anybody, but you could also have a young kid from Detroit or New York City or from Miami. Any of those people are looking at that same spot, the same view, and have the freedom to experience that moment of awe. Yeah, yeah. and what you're describing is this young man, African-American, he was just a kid. It was his first trip to Yosemite. And like I said, we were at the base of Lower Yosemite Fall. It was not at night, but he was just seeing that fall for the first time, the highest waterfalls in North America. And um, he, we kept walking closer, but he just was transfixed when he first had that image of what he was, what was before him. And I, I turned around, I went back to him and I said, hey, are, are you all right? Is everything okay? And he didn't even look at me. He just kept looking at the falls and he said, and I quote, I, I just had no idea that such beauty existed. And so the point that I'm making is this, that in the dominant culture, there's this perception that maybe people of color, maybe African-Americans cannot connect with these environments. And what I found is the exact opposite. Those people who have not been baptized in these environments are much more likely to have a transcendent moment in the presence of these places because there's been no buildup. They've gone from asphalt. They've gone from concrete and steel. They've come. They've gone from an urban environment, and suddenly they're in the presence of all that is holy in this world. And and you can see it in their face. You can see it like when you look at Rembrandt, those paintings, and you see that look of rapture, that that light that's coming from them. I've seen it in the faces of these African Americans and Hispanics and who who did not know these environments belonged to them, and that there was something sacred on this earth that you could just pay a fee and walk in and experience God. Sheldon, I hope I have the opportunity to stand by one of those falls. I'm not Oprah. I'm not President Obama. But I think you'll get a lot of oohs and ahs and, and wows out of me. Sheldon, thank you so much for sharing this. And I, I think maybe you're America's best kept secret. Uh, I like being a secret. It makes it easier to go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Richard. My pleasure. Every great expedition has to come to an end. But that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.